Good morning, church. Pastor Mike here. If you have your Bible, will you please open it up to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. We are working through this book in the weeks to come in the series we are calling Jonah, Nation, Race, Justice, and Mercy. Uh, that's the byline for this series because that those are the topics that the book addresses. Those are the topics that we need to work through as a congregation. And it, uh, it bears kind of stating, which I'm it's something we will be repeating throughout the series, that this book is more than just about a fish and a guy who runs from God, because it's more than just a moral lesson about how we should obey God, though it does include that. Because there's so much, as we work through the text, as we look at the context, as we look at Jonah's attitude and God's grace in this book, you'll see that um, all of these topics come jumping out about his God's heart for the lost, God's heart for a pagan and ungodly culture, and yet God's justice speaking against uh, injustice. Um, there's topics about race and racism because Jonah is a nationalist. Jonah is a racist. Jonah is someone who does not look uh, to have God's grace go out to a different nation than his own. He, he's worried about the military conquest of Israel over um, the nation of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria. So all those things are kind of a broad way to say we're jumping into this series. I'm very excited for it. And at the outset, my prayer is that we just have an open mind and an open heart to have God teach us what he wants to teach us as a congregation as we work through this book. So today, we will outline the passage. This sermon is an introduction to the book. I'll give you some broad details to help frame this discussion for the weeks to come. But my hope is that I don't dig into the details too much because we're going to be walking through this book verse by verse. Some things you should know as we jump into the book. Uh, this book is about the prophet Jonah. Jonah is mentioned only one other time in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where he's identified as a prophet in northern Israel. Jesus speaks of Jonah in Matthew 12, and that makes sense because Jonah and Jesus were born in the same region. And so Jesus would have grown up knowing the story of Jonah, understanding the theology of God and his grace in the story of Jonah. And it makes sense that Jesus would then also tell people that he is, in a sense, the truer and better and fulfillment of the prophet Jonah. Like virtually all ancient prophets, Jonah is a poet, and he exemplifies this in chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Uh, Nineveh is a city that God tells Jonah to go preach to. Nineveh is the capital city of the nation of Assyria. And if we're looking at kind of the, the crescent, the arc of biblical geography, and if Israel is over here, then uh, Nineveh would be over here, close enough that Nineveh and Assyria had invaded Israel in the past— uh, had not invaded Israel within the generation, nor would they invade Israel or attempt to invade Israel for another generation, but they would attempt to restore that nation and invade again. That paints the picture for a nation that is a threat to God's people. And it's an ungodly culture. It's views on sexuality. It's views on the value of human life. It's views on the poor and the marginalized. We're ungodly. If God's truth is objective and true, capital T truth, they violated that truth at every turn. And by God's decree, they are an ungodly nation with ungodly values. And God doesn't mind saying that in this book. That is Nineveh and Assyria. And then lastly, the questions we should ask uh, before we jump into the text 
is what kind of book is this? What are we looking at? What are we reading? This is a very unique book in the Old Testament. It's a prophet, a prophetic book about a prophet, but it's a narrative. It's not, uh, besides chapter 2, that is a poem, it's not in the first person, it's in the third person, it's about Jonah. Also, we notice that it doesn't treat Jonah favorably. In fact, there's this interesting parallel, interesting repetition, interesting uh, irony in the book, where the godly Israelite prophet is the sinner in the book. And then as you read through the story, you'll see that the pagans, the ungodly people, the people that are ignorant of the biblical God, are the repentant, the thoughtful, and the good people to an extent in this book. So, should we read this book as a parable or a legend? No. And that's because in ancient cultures, ancient writings, we know what uh, legends read like. And legends, for instance, typically make much of miracles because they use those as proofs to, uh, to justify the truthfulness of this legend or the importance of this legend. And though a fish does eat Jonah and he lives in that fish for three days and three nights and then he's vomited up, and though, though God does control a storm in the book and a plant in the book, this does not read like a legend. So uh, it doesn't read like a parable because parables are short. They're quick lessons. They usually are tied up with a nice little lesson. At the end, at least, it's easy to discern what that uh, lesson might be. So what we can gather from this book, from other texts, comparing it, looking at other prophetic books in the Bible, is that this was probably not written by Jonah, but this is most likely information that was translated, I'm sorry, uh, communicated from Jonah to someone who did write it down. I can imagine a likely scenario where Jonah, a real person, lived literally, went through these scenarios literally, and then told this story into the nation of Israel to share about God's grace, to learn the lesson that he might have learned by the end of this story, and then it gets put into this story and put into the Bible. So if the broader question is, was Jonah really swallowed up by a fish and really vomited up? And did God really cause a storm and, and all of these things? Uh, some of this is answered by Jesus's reference to the book of Jonah in Matthew 12, where he just says, so it is, to paraphrase, so it is uh, in the same way that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, lived for three days and three nights, and then was brought up, uh, so the Son of Man will be buried and resurrected. What I mean to say is, if you believe in a God that resurrects Jesus from the dead. If you believe in a God that is, um, to borrow our own term, supernatural, but it is perfectly natural because God's powerful and it's perfectly natural for him to do whatever he wants to do. Um, if you believe in that God, then you believe in a God who could have literally done these things. And there's nothing in the text that necessarily shows us that it has to have not been factually true. So the outline for this sermon today, as we walk through the, the book as a whole, is to show you three things that repeat in the book. I'd like to bring to light the structure of the book through these three points. It is God's word, God's world, and God's grace. And again, this is an overview, so we're going to go relatively quickly. God's word, God's world, and God's grace. God's word uh, is shared to Jonah twice in the book. When it comes to him that where God says, go preach to Nineveh, and then once Jonah repents, it comes to him again, and so we see God's word repeating twice. God's world is revealed to Jonah twice. It's a pagan world. It's an ungodly world, a, a world ignorant of who God is and what he's like. Uh, that happens in the beginning of the book when he's on a boat with sailors who are pagans and don't know God. And it happens again when he goes into the city of Nineveh to preach with pagans. 
And then that's his world. And then God's grace is emphasized twice because while Jonah is ungodly, he finally realizes something about God's grace that changes him, if, if only for a time. And then at the end of the book, God's grace is repeated and affirmed in the end of the book. So hang on tight. We're going to move pretty quickly through this book. If you look in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because the wickedness has come up before me. You know, it's not popular these days to say that um, one culture, one idea, one nation is wicked. And yet God, with his objective truth, does not mind saying that. So yes, it's a generality potentially. Maybe not every single person in that city was equally wicked, and that's not the statement. But yet... In our individualistic culture, we might even read that text and say, how dare God say someone is wicked? But God, not being American, not being Western, not being individualistic, but being God, is able to look at that culture and say, there are problems, and I don't mind calling it out. And he asks Jonah to go to that city and solve some of those problems, to preach against it. Because, in verse 1, in verse 2, their wickedness has come up before me. Go speak a message. So he says, go into a place that you're not comfortable. That's not your home where you're not known or trusted and speak a message that is culturally um, uh, opposed to the predispositions, the assumptions and the beliefs of that culture. Go into enemy territory, into a culture that does not, is not going to respect you and the things that you assume from God's word. And then go preach that message confronting the systems of power and the deeply held beliefs of that culture. And you can imagine, as soon as Jonah heard God say, go preach to Nineveh, that feeling, that knot in the pit of his stomach where he would say, that is the last thing I would ever do in my entire life. That's the last thing I would want to do for God. That's the last thing any smart, savvy, or godly Israelite person would ever do. Why would I go to Nineveh of all places? And yet God asks him to do it. Working through the story in chapter 1, we see in verse 3 that Jonah runs away from God. He sails on a boat to a foreign land called Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. In verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, which was common in the geography of the day. This happened oftentimes. And there were sailors there that were pagans. They cast lots to see if they could discern and divine what was the cause of the storm. And those lots fell on Jonah. In verse 12, he has a dialogue with these pagan sailors. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that the great storm has come upon you. In verse 15, it says, then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish, not a whale, by the way. If you grew up in church, for some reason, it's always a whale. I don't know what kind of fish it was, but it's a fish. It says not a whale. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's the first word that comes to Jonah. And then in the second half of the book, the word comes back to Jonah. Then the word of the Lord, uh, this is chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Again, it's a repetition. Go. Proclaim the message. That's the command. Let's just pause for a second and talk about the word of the Lord. When God's truth comes into your life, 
there's always a crisis of faith that, that is created. Whenever you see God's command for how you should spend your time, who you should love, the, the, the width and the depth of people that you should love, whenever God confronts your, your country, your culture's assumptions about family and about power, there's always a crisis of faith. And that crisis of faith basically asks the question, God, are you really going to take care of me if I obey you? I mean, think of just your, your chief repeating sins in your own life. That thing, that tendency that you continue to repeat in your life, it's the default mode of your sin. It catches you. It's, the way you're, it's where your mind and your heart turn every time you're worried or every time you're stressed, every time you're feeling down on yourself. Think of that repeating unfaithfulness to God. Isn't it rooted in the belief that God, you're not going to take care of me if I obey you instead of take care of myself? I don't trust you, God, as my Savior and my Lord. I need to take my life in my own hands. That happens every time the word of the Lord comes to you. Whenever you see God's standard, it brings to light, is he going to be powerful enough? Is he going to be good enough? Is God trustworthy that if I put my life in his hands, he's going to take care of me? It's almost like if you, if you think back on Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they didn't set out that day to ruin the world. They didn't set out that day to say, hey, let's ruin this great thing that we have. The simple question was, is it true that God has put us in a garden of delight, but that there's something that he's keeping from us? Sometimes we believe that God has put us in a world of delight, but that we will not experience all of it if we follow Jesus every step of the way. But is that true? I mean, sometimes God has a bigger picture in mind. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know where he's going to take you. And that's why it's called faith. Sometimes people use the word faith to mean like an ignorant just step of belief. But here, especially, the word faith, when it comes to us obeying God's word, faith is not just an ignorant step of belief. It's, it's trust. It's saying, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to be a good God to me if I do what you say with my money or with my time or my sexuality, or my relationships, than if I were the Lord of my own life. God's Word. Let's talk about God's world. Jonah lives in a world that God is working in. And this is a tired metaphor, but just track with me. They're like Jonah has put God in a box. Uh, he has very specific parameters where he thinks God's going to work. And that is, God likes my nation more than other people's. Uh, God has to work inside my moral boundaries that I have set, which means if I'm a good prophet, God's going to honor my people, my life, my family. And then this book is, is illustrating in vivid color, vivid detail, that God is working outside of your agenda. God has bigger plans to save people, to love people, to redeem people, to change people that might not be people that you like. It might not be the people that you vote for. It might not be the people that you expect him to use for his purposes. Jonah lives in God's world, not just his own nation, not just his own race, not just his own culture, not just his own agenda. And Jonah in this book is so worried that if he trusts God, it's going to violate the, the national military security of the nation of Israel. So he doesn't want to go into Nineveh. He wants no connections with that city. No connections with those people because he's afraid of what will happen if there's any kind of bridge, if God builds any kind of bridge between these two people. Christians should read this text to see God 
often working in a bigger redemptive plan that does not fit into your agenda. In chapter one, we see Jonah interacting with a pagan world. Basically, he goes on a boat to get as far away from God as possible. And then what happens is the sailors that are on the boat, and those sailors are pagan sailors. Sailors even today are not known as being the most observant religious people. Uh, They're surly, dirty, smelly, uh, pagan type folks. And if you look in chapter 1 here, you'll see in verses uh, 5, 6, 7 that uh, all the sailors were afraid during this storm, and each of them cried out to their own, their own pagan god. And they investigate, and they go, what god might be responsible for this storm? In verse 6 here, the captain went to Jonah and said, how can you sleep? He's under the, at the bottom of the boat sleeping. Get up and call on your god. Do your part, and maybe he'll take notice of us, and we will not perish. Jonah is being passive. He knows he's running away from God. He knows he's the reason why the storm is brewing. And these people might all die. He knows it. Selfishly, he's hiding in the bottom of the boat. And then this pagan sailor comes and says, Hey, why don't you try praying to your God? Maybe your God is trustworthy to save us. So God's world is clearly being kind of flipped upside down, where the pagans are the godly people in the book of Jonah. And in chapter 3, Jonah Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and they uh, repent. So if you look in verse 3, 4, this is the funniest part of the whole book. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and he says, this is his sermon to the Ninevites, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Not know God's grace, you know. If you want a contrast to this, read Acts chapter 17, where Paul like dialogues with Athenian people. He's talking to Greeks, he's talking to pagans, and he's he's dialoguing about their philosophy and theology and is spending time with them and living with them and preaching the gospel. Jonah doesn't do any of that. He's just saying, Hey everyone, God's gonna crush you. Just wait 40 days, and Nineveh is gonna be totally flicked off the face of the earth. And then the funny thing is with that terrible little sermon, they repent all the way up to the evil tyrannical king of an unjust society. He repents. Now, Jonah never really repents too much. The Ninevites never really repent too much. Like like, there's even parts of the book we'll dig in more where you see that even their repentance is still somewhat sinful. And yet they hear the warning from God and the fear of the Lord is kind of just penetrating their attitude at the time. That's what God's doing in his world. So a little bit of application for this. In our series, we're going to talk about political and national agenda leading up to our election because it's an important topic right now. Uh, Very specifically, the sermon about trusting God as Savior is the sermon that's put the Sunday after the election, <laughs> because we're going to talk about how even if your your guy and your girl uh, or your guy's lost, that we're still going to trust Jesus um, in chapter two. Uh, we're going to talk about race and inclusion and not assuming that your culture is more godly than other people. It's because God works through every different culture, because the, the good news of the gospel 
is that this is a foreshadowing of a thing that happens in history in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then if you go in the book of Acts, you see that the gospel is communicated out to all these different tribes and nations and languages. And then we fast flip all the way to the end of the Bible, and we see that people who repent and submit to Jesus come from every single culture and bring their cultures into heaven to make it beautiful and multicolored and multicultural and different music and different stuff that just goes on for eternity of a bunch of different cultures of people who are saved. This book foreshadows an amazing thing that we get to even enjoy today, that every type of person, when they submit to Jesus, is saved and redeemed and restored within their cultural background. And they bring that into the life of the church and into God's kingdom. In politics, we're going to talk in this series about uh, how Sometimes it's an oversimplification to say, uh, let's not ever talk about politics. Let's just preach the gospel. Because here we see that God's preaching is going to change the culture. Because it, the assumption that this wicked nation of Nineveh, the, the assumption here is that it's going to be changed if Jonah did his job to go preach to it. They would repent. They would start valuing human life. They would start valuing children as human. They would stop subjugating and hurting women because they're uh, on average physically weaker. They would stop abusing people sexually. Like The implication here is go preach and bring redemption and God's truth and, and God's world redeeming message to the city. It would inherently involve some of the topics that we call political. So it's an oversimplification. And yet, there's no, as we try and apply this into our world today, uh, it's hard when you read these, this book or other pages of scripture to say that we have to vote one certain way, to, uh, we have to vote for a particular policy, and we'll dig into some of that in more detail. The last question that's really emphasized about God's world is the question, who is my neighbor? And how do we love our neighbors? And how do we live the kind of lives where we are neighborly, not just in our uh, literal neighborhoods, but to different types of people in our cities? And then thirdly, we see something powerful in this book about God's grace. God's grace. Again, I don't want to get too much into it because I'm stealing from uh, other sermons in this series. But in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, if you read it this week, you'll see that there's this one definitive statement that Jonah finally realizes before he's vomited up and then goes out and preaches. And it is this line. At the end of this long poem, he realizes and repents to God and he says, salvation is of the Lord. Old Testament professor Edmund Clowney uh, said once that he thinks this verse is this the very middle of the Bible, the very center of the Bible, the very center of the heart of the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. That's an important thing for us to meditate. Like if I was going to have us memorize just one part of this book to leave at the end of this series and, and just always remember, it would be that line. That we know in our hearts that salvation is not of Mike. Salvation is not of job success. Salvation is not of the approval of others. Salvation is of the Lord. It's a thing that he does. It's a thing that we love about him. Salvation is of the Lord. And in, that's the first time we see in, in detail God's grace. And then in chapter 4, at the end of the book, the book ends with a cliffhanger. 
Jonah is upset. He actually quotes the uh, other parts of scripture and says, I knew it, God. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were loving. I knew you would never bring down that city. I knew you would have patience and grace for those people. And then the book ends with this line in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? God's saying, I have mercy to these people. They're ignorant of who I am. They don't know what they're doing. Their beliefs fall perfectly in line. Their actions fall perfectly in line with their beliefs. The problem is we need to change their heart with God's mercy. So the point is that God's grace is this wonderful animating power. And I kind of want to just close with this. God's grace is the animating feature, the animating power, the life-changing force of anyone who knows and follows God. God's grace is, is something that we say a lot. It's the unmerited favor that God gives us. And because of Christ's death on the cross, he takes on the punishment that we deserve for our injustice that we create in the world, our sin. He gives us the life, Jesus gives us the life that only he deserved because of his perfection and perfect obedience to God the Father. That's God's grace. The result of that exchange is God's mercy and grace on all of us. If you've ever been to church and it's boring, the discussions about God are boring. The songs are sung in a boring way. It's not because God is boring. It's not because God doesn't have power. It's because so often, even when we gather on a Sunday morning, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of all the boring church services I've been a part of. It's not that God is boring. It's that we lose track so much with the animating principle and truth of what it's like to know God, that He has grace on sinners. Your screw-ups, your mistakes, your inadequacies are no match for God's mercy. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's the animating principle of what it's like to follow Jesus. The point is that your sins, your screw-ups, no match for his mercy, and that changes us. Charles Wesley is an old, uh, old hymn writer, Christian leader from American history, and he wrote um, a hymn, and here's one block of lines from it. It's a po- it, it reads poetic. He's describing here poetically the moment that he became a Christian. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. My eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you're a religious person like Jonah, and you find your justification in your nation, in your righteousness, in your role as a follower of God, claiming just because you're you that you must be right in line with God's uh, plan, you're never going to say this, my chains fell off, my heart was free, and now I rise and go forward and follow thee. Religiosity never causes us to have that kind of joy, that kind of freedom. That kind of uh, statement here from Charles Wesley, where a light shined into my life, it broke the bonds that once kind of kept me captive, and now I'm able to be free and walk forward with joy as a Christian. You would never say that if your life is just bound by duty and religiosity. Instead, this book specifically shows us 
If you get God's grace, you will understand a powerful animating feature on what it's like to follow God. Because salvation is of the Lord. That's his agenda. That's what he's doing. That's what he wants to do in your life. I, if, it, if you resonate with the truth that your sins are no match for his mercy, that your mistakes are no match for his grace, if you feel unworthy of God's grace, understand that even that sense of like unworthiness is God working in your heart. If, you, if you've ever had the thought like, I just don't know that God would ever accept me, get yourself out of the way and just accept the truth given to you in scripture that he's a merciful God that's graceful to you and receive it. I had a friend one time who, um, through some of the decisions he made while in the military said, you know, I've done a lot of bad things and I understand that God could forgive me, but I will never forgive myself. And I feel like because it was the Iraq war, because it was difficult things that were going on at the time and things that I knew he went through and, and that he did, I didn't know what to say because it was a difficult subject and I was trying to be empathetic. I now know that that kind of attitude is in a sense saying, when you say, I know God could forgive, but I'll never forgive myself. You're putting yourself in God's place. If there's something keeping you from accepting the mercy that God offers, and it's you, then you're still in that place of God. You're still putting yourself in that place of Lord and Savior. You're basically saying, unless I forgive myself, no one can forgive me. And sometimes when we feel guilty, when we feel inadequate, we can, it can cloud our judgment. Push that all to the side. And even in today's passages, see God's mercy flooding into a world of people who don't deserve it and accept it. Let that go into your own heart and accept that yourself. My hope is if you read the whole book of Jonah this week, you'll even be able to pause and see that salvation is of the Lord and it's something that he offers all of us, something that he's working in the world and something that he offers you through his grace. I hope you're blessed by the sermon this morning. Let me pray and then we'll continue to worship.